It's Thursday, December 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The future is here, and robot cars are now officially a real business. Google offshoot Waymo has launched their commercial ride-hailing service in Arizona, and just like Uber or Lyft, you can order your ride with an app, but the car will be doing all the driving. Russ Mitchell with the LA Times joins us to talk about robots on the road. Next, in a story that has gotten national attention, a high school newspaper in a football town in Arkansas published an investigation into five football players' transfers to a rival school. What happened next is what made headlines. The school district made the students take down their article and would not allow them to post again without approval because it was causing such a disruption. Amber Jamison, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us to discuss this journalistic controversy. Finally, more movement in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. He is recommending no prison time for former Trump national security advisor Michael Flynn. Flynn was such a great help to the investigation, no jail time was necessary. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, joins us for the biggest takeaways from Mueller's sentencing memo. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What if the world's most experienced driver was at your fingertips? A fully self-driving car, ready to take you where you need to go. Introducing the self-driving service, Waymo One. Joining us now is Russ Mitchell. He writes for the business section of the LA Times, covering the global auto industry and driverless cars. Waymo has started their ride-hailing service in Arizona. It's called Waymo One, and it works just like an Uber or Lyft, but in this case, it's going to be a self-driving car. What else do we know about this launch that they have? It's been called a historic milestone in the development of robot cars because it's the first truly commercial opportunity for people to pay to drive in a driverless car. However, at this point, it is limited to a few hundred customers who have been pre-selected, and they will also have an engineer behind the wheel of the car. The important part is they'll be able to summon the car with an app on their phone. Although there will be a Google engineer in the car, the car will drive itself, and it won't be long. They won't say exactly how long, but it won't be too long before the cars will show up with no human inside to pick passengers up and take them from here to there. What kind of cars are they using and how are these new fares going to be comparable to Uber and Lyft? Most of the cars in their fleet are Chrysler Pacifica vans, hybrid vans. It's very similar to Uber and Lyft, except there won't be a human driver. How much are they saying that Waymo could be valued because of this stuff? A lot. Nobody knows for sure. They're kind of throwing darts at the uh, dartboard, but the dartboard ranges from a valuation of $50 billion to $175 billion by different Wall Street estimates for Waymo alone, if Waymo were split off from Google. People who study this market and study transportation and industry believe that not only will this have tremendous social and economic impacts, it will also have a business impact of creating an industry, depending on how you count it, will be certainly in the hundreds of billions and possibly over a trillion dollars a year. Waymo is the leader in this right now. Everyone else is getting into the game. As I said, Uber was doing stuff. I think they scaled back what they were doing with driverless cars. GM, as we know, was laying off a lot of workers and a lot of plants because they're refocusing on electric vehicles and driverless vehicles. And the demand is there even for Waymo. They have this early rider program, which was their beta testing version of all this stuff. They attracted like 20,000 applicants, even though they only used about 400 people. 
That's right. Waymo is widely considered to be in the lead. I would guess that if you really knew the the science and engineering behind it, there may be other companies that have a better approach in, in one aspect or another, the way a sensor might work. But they've been at it the longest. They have a lot of money behind it. They have Google's mapping program already, which gives them a head start. They're already advanced in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Those are all benefits. But there are other players in the game. Ford has a company subsidiary called Argo that is building driverless systems. GM, as you mentioned, has GM Cruise, which was supposed to be deploying commercial service in San Francisco by the end of this year. That apparently has been delayed by months. And there's various other companies that are uh, building their own systems, both in the U.S. and around the world, including in uh, China, where there are lots of, of big Chinese companies that are also developing this technology. One of the funny notes in your article was that Waymo had their early rider program. As I said, it was kind of their beta version of this thing. So now they have Waymo One. And one of the only differences really is that a lot of these customers now won't be required to sign non-disclosure agreements. So they get to, they get to talk about the experience now. And I've just read some people that have taken early rides in these things. And they say that the rides are largely uneventful. They, it, drives like a normal person sometimes. One of the accounts I saw was, uh, you know, the car slows down for speed bumps, accelerates for lane changes, and it even overshot the crossing line and reversed itself so it can uh, make way for pedestrians. But, you know, this technology is still early. And as I was saying, it's all about safety. And that's why they're still rolling it out in, in such small numbers. There's still a lot of work to do. There are cases where a human driver might react in one way and the robot system would react in another and they have to iron those things out. In fact, you know, I've been driven in several robot cars. The first time I got in one, it was kind of exciting for about a minute and then it became kind of boring. And it, <laughs> right. It is, Isn't that what you want though, right? You want it to be yeah, uneventful because that's then you feel better about it. Absolutely. Although there are some quirks, like you mentioned, like going into a crosswalk and then backing up. The state of California tracks accident reports with driverless cars. Almost all of them have been minor, but they've been uh, mostly situations where a driver in another car bumped into the driverless car because the driverless car was not behaving like a human. Often making a right-hand turn on a red light would start to move forward and then brake suddenly. Maybe it saw a plastic bag flying somewhere and got freaked out and pressed the brake where a human wouldn't do that. You mentioned the crosswalk. There aren't a lot of drivers that are going to back up because they went a few inches into a crosswalk. (laughs) So there are going to be uh, incidents like that. And frankly, there will be some, and everybody in the industry expects that there will be some crashes and deaths with these things. They believe that the rate will be at a lot smaller rate than uh, deaths and injuries caused by human drivers. And just have to, you know, drive around and look at people being distracted by their cell phones or their infotainment systems. And I'm sure you and I are both uh, guilty of that on occasion. There are good reasons to think that these will be safer. Nonetheless, there will be accidents that the media will, because it's the media and it's to be expected, will play up and people will notice. Well, in the meantime, the future is here. It's starting in Arizona with Waymo One, and it'll be exciting to see how this technology really does continue to develop. Russ Mitchell with the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They shut down the paper in the hope that that would mean that there would be no longer any argument about the transfers. Because they shut down the paper, obviously, people are horrified that students lose the right to a free press and right to free speech. Joining us now is Amber Jamison, breaking news reporter for BuzzFeed News. We're going to be talking about a story that has been picked up all over the country now. And it's just a fascinating little story. It's a story of small town football 
and it's a story of student journalists and then the school district that was trying to suppress their article because it was making people look bad. We're talking about an Arkansas school, Harbor High School. They wrote a story about football players who had been transferred to another school. Things seemed a little fishy. They dug into it and they wrote an article and then all of a sudden they started getting blowback from administrators and superintendents of the school district. What do we know about this story? So it's a really fascinating look at what's happening in this town, which is a football-obsessed town, and these are the two major high schools that are total football rivals. When you had these five varsity football players transfer last year, it was this big discussion in the town about why they transferred, how they were allowed to transfer, etc. These students decided to dig into it, some of the students at Harbour Herald, which is the high school where the, the students left from, and they've traditionally been the real powerhouse in football in the town, they're a more wealthy school, and so usually it, there's been issues of transfers the other direction, but usually they don't lose five of their top players. And so the student journalists received FOIA requests that was you know given to them by an anonymous source that showed the transfer documents that the students' parents had used to allow their sons to continue playing sport because basically there's a rule that you can't just transfer to play sport. That can't be a reason if you're going to transfer within a district. There has to be that you've moved house or that there's some sort of hardship. But this you, all has to do with like recruiting rules. You can't exactly. re- recruit students to come and play sports. There's all sorts of rules related to this. This is in Springdale, Arkansas. It's like Friday Night Lights, how big these games are and how important these high school football games are to the community there. 100%. And so what it meant is that when this article came out in the high school newspaper, it was just like Obama had gone off. Like it really frustrated and upset a lot of people on both sides. You know, obviously Harbour High School felt like this sort of showed evidence that perhaps there'd been issues about the football players being allowed to transfer. They all claimed that they had academic reasons for transferring. And then obviously Springdale was felt very frustrated and upset that for the first time in 12 years won a football game against Harbour and it was being held against them because of these students. So it really was this big controversy in the school district. And so just three days after the article was published, a representative from the school district contacted the journalism advisor at Harbour Herald and demanded that the story be removed. And then there was a bit of to and fro over a couple of weeks. The story was removed and there was some to and fro over whether there was a few minor issues. They called a t-shirt pink that was red. There was dispute over who recorded a video that is mentioned in the article. So there was a few little classic issues that happened when you're reporting, particularly obviously teen reporters, that you would maybe run a correction for or you would, you know, edit and and update that you'd change this small detail. It wasn't changing the overall argument of the piece to smaller details. Not at all. Um, I, I read the original article and it was very well written and they brought in a lot of specific clauses from all these rules that they have in place to prevent, you know, these recruiting things and the rules regarding how students are transferred and how the allowances they get to be able to play sports again. And they brought all this stuff and they wrote it out very methodically. Very clearly. Yeah. And it it totally smacks of, hey, you know, we brought these students over to play sports over here. They were kind of skirting some of the rules and it just kind of exposed what happened. They even did on the record interviews 
whip some of those players themselves where they're saying, I'm going over to the other school because the sports opportunities are better. You know, I'll be able to play Division One college ball if I go to this school because I'll be able to make a better name for myself. One of the things that had been sort of argued against that was that they made those comments last December while right in the process of them transferring, while it was obviously published only very recently last month. There was a lot of debate over what should and shouldn't have been allowed to be published in the piece and, and privacy and all sorts of things. So it really created this big controversy. And the way that the school district responded was to suspend all newspaper publications. Yeah, they basically said, we don't like what you're writing and we're shutting you down. So they took all that stuff down. It seemed like they threatened the teacher advisor that was helping the students. She's been under a lot of threats too. That she helped, if you know, she helped publish them, then she would be terminated. She had numerous times. Yeah. She was the principal had asked to see a copy of the article before it was published, which Arkansas is one of 14 states that have a bunch of laws to protect student reporters. And part of that is that school does not need to approve what is published. So the school was asking to be able to view the article beforehand to see if it passed, if they deemed it suitable and the student advisor refused to let them. And that was then sort of one of the reasons argued of why she should perhaps face termination because of the publication of the article. What is the update now for the Harbor Herald? The both the article itself and there was an accompanying editorial and they have reappeared. There's no note that the article has been removed for nearly a month or several weeks. <laughs> the school district hasn't responded to any of my calls or emails, either has the principal. They really sort of just shut down completely and did not want to speak. And that's sort of the irony of all these things, right? They shut down the paper in the hope that that would mean that there would be no longer any arguing about the transfers. Yeah. Because they shut down the paper, obviously people are horrified that students lose the right to a free press and right to free speech. It's just a great story of real good journalism, obviously on a smaller scale. You know, we're not do dealing with presidential politics or anything like that, but it's something that's important to that community there. And it's just a great story. So Amber Jamison, breaking news reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Michael Flynn sat for 19 hours with prosecutors and assisted with at least three investigations, including one redacted criminal investigation, one separate investigation, and the special counsel's investigation of potential collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Joining us now is Lauren Meyer reporter for Axios. The things in Robert Mueller's investigation seem to have been picking up. There was some movement last week with Paul Manafort. And then again, this week now, a new memo came out ahead of Michael Flynn's sentencing, basically saying that he helped us out so much, I don't think that he deserves any jail time. He released this memo, but a lot of parts of it were heavily redacted. So it's kind of on all of us now to read in between the lines and see what's actually there. So what do we know about that actual uh, memo that he released? What we know about this memo released very late Tuesday evening that, as you mentioned, is largely redacted, it highlights just how much Michael Flynn has been cooperating in this Mueller investigation, so much so to the point that Robert Mueller is recommending no jail time. He was previously facing a minimum sentence of five years in prison and a $250,000 fine, but under his plea agreement and pending his cooperation, he was eligible for a zero to six 
six months of jail time and can ask a court to waive the fine. So from this court filing, we also saw that Michael Flynn sat for 19 hours with prosecutors and assisted with at least three investigations, including one redacted criminal investigation, one separate investigation, and the special counsel's investigation of possible coordination or potential collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. That criminal investigation could be any number of things. As you said, part of it was redacted, but it could be like Paul Manafort and his uh, business dealings was a part of something like that. So it could be something similar. And then, as you said, the special counsel's probe and then this mystery investigation that we have no clue what's in there, that the whole part on that was completely redacted. And you were talking about how happy Mueller was with Michael Flynn's assistance. You know, you contrast that with George Papadopoulos, who they said he didn't provide anything of assistance to us. And they complained that he was talking to the press. He got two weeks in jail. Michael Cohen, you guys at Axios had this big magic number that the president is very worried about. 119, 70 hours of Michael Cohen interviews, 30 hours of interviews with former White House counsel Don McGahn, and then these 19 Michael Flynn interviews that he did with prosecutors. What this sentencing memo for Michael Flynn explains or just really shows is just how helpful that he was. And so as you mentioned, George Papadopoulos, he was pretty helpful to the special counsel and only got two weeks in jail. Michael Flynn was even far more significantly embedded with the Trump campaign and how a much higher stake in this situation than George Papadopoulos ever had. So it's going to be interesting to see what ultimately happens with Michael Flynn, because now we're seeing just how helpful he was. This can mean any number of things that he mentioned to the special counsel, but it is possible that he ultimately will not receive any jail time like Mueller is requesting. Anything that Mueller throws out there, the media jumps on it right away. You're trying to read further into what the ultimate Mueller report is going to put out there. And we're talking about these contrasts between Michael Flynn and, and Papa and these other guys like Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn has remained, largely remained out of the public eye while all of this stuff was going on. The president early on was kind of lamenting, oh, you're ruining Michael Flynn's life. But Paul Manafort, everybody was talking to him saying, are you going to are you going to be pardoning him? George Papadopoulos was talking to the press and his wife was also Michael Cohen. The president is just hating on him every chance he gets. So it's just so crazy how this is all playing out. As I said, Michael Flynn staying out of the public eye for this. Absolutely. And that is most likely to do with how heavily involved Michael Flynn has been in the special counsel's investigation that Michael Flynn, a former national security advisor to Trump last year, of course, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his conversations with a former Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak, before Trump's inauguration. And so in this plea deal that he struck far earlier on in the investigation, uh, as a matter of fact, it was one of the first deals that was struck in this investigation. He agreed to cooperate fully with Mueller's investigation, which is also something that we, some sort of agreement that we've seen in other deals that have been struck. But Michael Flynn appears to have been cooperating far and away the most out of anyone else. And they also blamed him for other people lying also, other Trump transition team members, most notably probably Sean Spicer and Mike Pence, because they were following what Michael Flynn had said. So they threw him under the bus for them all lying also on this thing. Then we just talk about all the redactions. There is so much we still don't know, things that Robert Mueller still isn't ready to let everybody know. That is a really key point in this 13-page document, just how much was redacted. And a lot of the information 
information that we got from this memo, our conclusions that many of us who've been following the investigation can, for the most part, jump to on our own that he was cooperating so much that X, Y, and Z people are involved. But it is showing even more light into how deep this probe is really going. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.